What would you do if one day you woke up in the middle of the night to grab a little midnight snack out of your fridge? But instead you're confronted by the ghastly vision of a dead boy screaming out, Please don't kill me, sir! It was only one pie! <laughs> you're like, dude, I gotta lay off the mescaline if this is what happens when I wake up in the middle of the night. And then we take a look at what happens when a conspiracy theorist is in charge of your local government. And we are forced to ask the question, what if he's right? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. Let's go ahead and get this episode started. First off, flying into Dead Rabbit Command, everyone give a round of applause for our newest Patreon supporter, Despicable B. Woo, yeah, ha, yeah, woo, yeah, yeah. We're trying not to clap too hard. We might accidentally squish B. B, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally get it. Just help spread the word about the show. You have no idea how much that helps out. Despicable B, get all your arms ready. I'm going to toss you an oar for the dead rabbit robo we're gonna row 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 out of dead rabbit command all the way out to sanger california splash oh splash we're all rowing that boat like some big old viking thing there was just a bee just a bee sitting on our shoulder hey bee sanger california i never heard of this place until i found this ghost story so i don't know is it beautiful it might be a run down hell for all i know but if you're driving, you happen to be able to survive the gauntlet, the bloody gauntlet that is known as Sanger, California, eventually you will end up at 87 Acacia Drive. A simple house in a simple suburb somewhere deep in California. But this house has a horrifying issue. Food keeps disappearing from the fridge. That might not sound super scary. It really, isn't, it really isn't that scary. But here's the thing, man. I have such a limited amount of food in my fridge at any given time. Right now, all I have is a bunch of Gatorade, <laughs> half-drinking bottle of Zero Coke that's like dream-flavored or something like that. It tastes like pineapple. It's disgusting. And it's not going to taste any better. I don't know why I just keep taking sips from it every once in a while and go, eh, and put it back. I should just pour it out. But I got a bunch of Gatorade. I have a bottle of Coke Zero Dream Flavor and then some water and some Slim Fast. That's it. But I count on those things. <laughs> I'm like, man, I sure am thirsty. I hope that Coke Zero Dream Flavor is still in there. Ugh, I take a sip. I'm like, I'm not thirsty anymore. It's cured my thirst. I'm a man that doesn't have a lot of food in his fridge or really anywhere in my pantry, right? I just kind of get what I eat and eat what I get. Never really had a big backup of food. So if I went to go eat my can, I do have a pantry. This is all the food that I eat. You guys are immediately joining the Patreon there. You're like, Jason, you're going to starve. I do have a pantry. I'll reach in and I'll pull out a can of beef tamales. Did you know they sell tamales in a can? I do because I eat them. And cans of chili. Got canned chili. But I know, like, I'm like, oh, dude, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry for that can of beef tamales. They're actually pretty good. And uh, you're shaking your head. You're like, okay, I'm joining the Patreon, Jason. Go buy some real tamales. I'm fine. I'm fine. 
But let's say I come home from work and I'm just ready to dig into those tamales. And they weren't there. I'd be totally bummed, dude. I'd be like, oh, no. I'd find something else to eat. <laughs> I really was in the mood for some canned beef tamales. I would instantly know if stuff was missing from my pantry or from my fridge. And I think most people would. If you were really looking forward to, say, a salad and you had like a head of lettuce and a couple tomatoes and some onions, whatever else goes in a salad, and you can't wait to go home and chop it up, chop, 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 and make a salad, you go there and there's no lettuce. You'd be like, oh, no, now I'm just going to sit here and eat one tomato and one onion. You're like, no, Jason, normal people have extra food. Normal people don't just go, oh, I want a meal, and it's not there, and then you just sit there in the dark. It's It would be an issue. You may not, horrifying may be the wrong word for it, but not knowing, like coming home and thinking you're going to have someone eat and it not being there does completely suck. Okay, it's not horrifying. <laughs> you find a very inconvenient issue. Because food's missing from your fridge. Now, I think your first thing, you wouldn't go paranormal right off the bat. I don't think so. If you notice food was missing from your fridge, you would think, well, maybe I ate it, right? Maybe I already ate it. Or maybe someone came over. I did have that party the other day, and the guy was high in my head of lettuce. He's like, hmm, are you going to eat that later? You're like, yeah, Joe, I'm totally going to make a salad. Why do you just want a head of lettuce anyways? I'm just curious. I mean, if you don't want it. You know, I'll eat it. I'll eat it right now. I bet you five dollars. I can't eat that whole head of lettuce. Get out of here. Go, go. You would think it might be somebody like a roommate or a family member that's snacking that you don't know about, right? That's doing some late night snacking. But as you're sitting there in front of your fridge and you're like, where did that food go? All of a sudden, you hear a voice go, "Oh man, please don't, don't blow my brains out." You're like, what? Where did that come from? Oh, sir, please. It was just a single pie. Oh, no, please. I'm just an orphan. Don't shoot me in the face. You're like, what? This is super specific. This is super weird. What's going on? And you realize that somewhere around you, you can hear the disembodied voice of a young boy. Please, sir, Just it just looks so delicious, and I, I really wanted to... You're just standing there outside your fridge. You just wanted a snack. And instead you heard a little monologue from a ghost boy. Apparently, at Acacia Drive, specifically 87 Acacia Drive. Now, I tried looking this house up, this exact house on Google Maps, and it brought me to three Acacia Drive. And then when I started looking at the addresses, I started zooming in, looking at people's addresses. I couldn't find exactly 87 Acacia Drive, so I don't know if this house still specifically exists or at some point it got torn down. But on this street, in this house, or in this area, supposedly there is this haunting. Food goes missing from your fridge, and then you'll hear a young boy pleading for his life, Don't shoot me, please! Not again! (laughs) How many times have you been shot? Well, I've stole a bunch of pies. Let's travel back in time to the Great Depression. And not at Acacia Drive, because it didn't exist at this time. It's just kind of a field. Nearby, though, nearby during the Great Depression, there was this farmer. And he's sitting at home, and his wife is baking up a pie. He's like, ah, yes, the Great Depression. I sure am sad. Someone needs to invent some Zoloft. But until then... I'll just sit against this chair and wait for that 
cherry pie to finish cooking. And then Ma goes, well, it's done. But, you know, I didn't actually know this was a thing. Is this a thing? We have to let it sit on the windowsill to cool. You can't just eat this pie. Okay. I guess. I mean, I'm not saying... Like, did they put it at the windowsill? It seems like that would be an invitation for people to steal it. At the very least, a crow is going to get a couple cherries out of it. Let it cool on the table. Or anywhere... Where some random orphan, which is what happens here, the woman is cooling the pie on the windowsill, and an orphan boy is wandering through the area, and he's so hungry, he's like, oh, I've got to eat something. This Great Depression, when will it end? And he's walking by, and he smells the cherry pie from the windowsill. <laughs> There's no reports that he actually floated as his nostrils were tickled by a little scent line that wasn't in the reports, but... The orphan smells the fresh pie and sees it and walks up to it and he grabs the pie off the windowsill and takes off running. Now the farmer sees what has happened and he grabs his rifle, kind of overreaction, but he grabs his rifle and he runs out after the orphan boy. I get it. It's not a lot of money. It's the Great Depression. It may not be able to make another pie. But... If someone is run <laughs> if someone is running with a pie and you pull a gun on them, a couple of things are gonna happen. One, they're probably just gonna drop the pie, right? It's not like they're gonna keep holding on to it and eventually we'll catch up to them and get the pie back. If you were running with a <laughs> you're running with a hot pie and a guy came out with a shotgun, you're ditching the pie. It's gonna make you run a little bit slower. I don't care how hungry you are, and you can't like just start eating it there. It's a hot pie. It's not like, oh, if, if I have enough cherries, that'll give me the energy to escape. It's still piping hot. The kid's gonna drop the pie, or the kid's gonna keep running with the pie, and it's just gonna slosh all over the place and stuff like that. He should have just let the kid have the pie, is what I'm saying. But he doesn't. The farmer takes off after him with the rifle. And the kids running. We don't. There's no also no reports on what happened to the pie. We don't know if who ate it, but we can assume the orphan kid didn't get it. The kids running. The farmer's chasing him with a rifle, and eventually the kid gets to this area that would soon be Acacia Drive. But at this point, it's just kind of an empty field. And the farmer catches up to him and levels that rifle right at the boy. And he goes, "Sir, please, I didn't mean to steal your pie. Well, I didn't mean to steal your pie. It wasn't an accident. I just walked by and it jumped into my hand, but." Sir, please, I'm just so hungry. I'm so sorry. I just really needed a cherry pie. And that farmer aims that rifle right at him. And no, sir, please. I just wanted something to eat. Now, there's two different reports. One is that the gun accidentally discharged. The farmer was thinking, well, you know, just a young boy. I don't want to scatter his brains all over this empty field. The other one is that he shot him. The other one is that the farmer didn't care. The pleas for mercy went unheard, and he shot this kid at close range with a rifle. Had said pie survived this long, if the kid was able to expertly carry it all the way to this part of the field, he sets it down gently, he turns around and pleads for his life. I still want to eat this pie. I don't care if it was perfectly perfectly there, because now there's dead boy all over your pie. He's like, farmer's like, oh, I didn't think about that. Can eat it now, or can I? What we have today is the ghost of this boy in this house, because, you know, he died and then eventually a neighborhood sprung up around it. He haunts this house and food disappears. 
And every so often you'll hear him moaning and crying out, Please don't shoot me. It was just a pie. This is a super interesting haunting. On the one hand, this is what we call a residual haunting. It's basically the spirit of the boy is long gone. This is a psychic recording of an extremely tragic event. A young kid being shot, being murdered, because he was so hungry he stole the pie. And it's one of those hauntings that just continues to play out over and over and over again. This is the most common type of haunting. This is the most common type of ghost activity. You can't interact with the child on any sort of level, you're just hearing his pleas for help because when he was killed, he left a psychic scar across the area. But that only accounts for the voice. What makes this an unusual haunting is not only is it playing out an event over and over and over and over again, like the ghost walking down the hallway or the ghost woman standing in the attic looking for her long-lost lover to come home from the Civil War. These are just recordings of events. The disappearing food is one of the most rare type of hauntings. That, that's where we start to get into poltergeist activity. When physical matter is appearing or disappearing, that is one of the most rare types of hauntings. So this is a really interesting one. Ghostly voices over and over again, dime a dozen. Dime a dozen. Having food, and again, it's not like pennies disappearing. It's not like where did I put my car keys type of thing. It's specifically food. It's specifically a single type of item that continues to go missing. Now, of course, the story could totally be made up. It could 100% be urban legend. I found it reported in two different places. The Shadowlands.net, which is one of my favorite repository of ghostly stuff. It's been doing us great through October. Like I said, a ghost story a day, and I'm actually shocked that I've been able to keep to that. And then there is a uh, on this website called Kings River Life, which is a local website local news they had a story called they had an article called ghost stories of singer so they also are reporting this as well but it makes us ask the question where's the food going obviously if you have roommates in your house or you have a family and food goes missing you know where it's going it's going into their belly but if a ghost is taking this food is he capable of eating it is he capable of actually destroying matter because that's a huge thing. That, that, as far as the paranormal world goes, that's so insane. Can a ghost, can the dead actually destroy matter? When a human eats a head of lettuce, you can digest it and then you expel it from your body, right? You poop it out. But what happens when a ghost eats a head of lettuce? What happens when a ghost eats a can of tamales or a pie? Like, where does that go? Does it turn into some sort of ectoplasmic residue? Does it simply disappear from the mortal coil? Obviously, we don't know, because there's so much stuff we don't know about ghosts. We're looking at a ghost that's actually hungry. He died hungry, and now his ghost is continuing to destroy matter in some way. Is it simply disappearing? Is he devouring it? Who knows? I remember a long time ago, I've actually tried so hard to find this article again. I didn't bookmark it like I normally do. I just I was being a dork. But I found this really, so I can't cite it, but I'll tell you the story. I found a really interesting thing. It's very, very common in ghost stories, specifically in places that are haunted, like hotels, haunted businesses, haunted department stores, that the bathroom sinks will turn themselves on. 
you'll be in there all by yourself. And these aren't the new, the new ones with the sensors that do turn themselves on. You'd be in the bathroom all by yourself, and then you'd hear the water running behind you. And you'd turn around, and you'd actually see the switch flipped up on the water faucet. And you're like, what? I mean, like, that actually takes physical strength to move up and down. Lights going on and off, to us, it takes physical strength, again, before the age of motion detectors, but you actually have to flick a switch. That can also easily be some sort of wiring issue, right? Or the light bulbs uninstalled correctly or anything like that. But to have water come out of a faucet, you actually have to turn it up and down. It requires a manual strength, manual movement and strength to turn the water on and off. Super common, though, when we look at haunted businesses, haunted hotels, they have bathrooms will do this, haunted department stores, and so on and so forth. You'll see it also in houses as well. You'll hear about the water faucet turning on and off in the kitchen. And I saw this website, and they actually... This was, I can't believe I, I dropped the ball on this. I wish I could cite it for you. I'll try one last time before... I, maybe I can put it in the show notes. But they said the reason why... Ghosts turn the water on and off. Like, that is a very common thing. The lights flickering on and off, we can imagine, is just spooky, right? For whatever reason, ghosts love to be super spooky. But the reason why they turn the water on and off, and it said this very plainly in the sentence, matter of factually, ghosts are constantly thirsty. They're parched. So they turn the water on and they're drinking it. I had never heard that theory before. It sounds like common sense. It really does sound like common sense because that is such a normal thing that happens in haunted places. The water turning on and off. And so they're drinking it. I was like, wow, that's really creepy. And I don't know why I didn't save that bookmark. But yeah, you have. But see, even then, like if a ghost is drinking the water, the water's not actually disappearing. You're still seeing it run through. It's just the idea that someone turned it on. You didn't. You're the only person in the bathroom. But do ghosts eat and drink? And if so, that opens up to where do these products go? When I drink, I know what's going to happen to it. I know where the water's going to be in an hour or two. It's going to be coming back out of me. Fascinating ghost story, and it does make you ask, is this ghost actually consuming this food? Is the ghost in some way actually... It's possible that the ghost is just taking it. But then the, then the question is, where? It's not like... The, and one day we went into the basement and it was full of all the food we'd lost in the past 40 years. Rotten vegetables all the way down. Where is the food going? If the ghost is actually dematerializing the food, that's one thing. Where is it going? But if if he's eating it, that's even weirder. Because then, like, how does it biologically work? Well, it doesn't. There is no biological system in this ghost. But eating and drinking, is it something that ghosts do? Fascinating story. If you happen to live out in Sanger, California, if you happen to live out there, go knock on this house and go, hey, can I see your fridge? Actually, don't do that. Because that's the reason why Alex Jones just got sued and lost for a billion dollars. I haven't covered that. I think that's big enough news. I probably, I mean, it's really fascinating as far as the world of conspiracy theory goes that you have that judgment against them. But that was the big issue. People were going to the houses of the families of the Sandy Hook victims and knocking on their doors and harassing them. So do not do, not do that involving this ghost. It, it's a, it is an interesting ghost story. I wonder what's actually going on there. Urban legend. 
actual haunting, if it's an actual haunting, there's a whole host of questions here about what could be going on. Despicable B, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the carpenter copter. We are leaving behind Sanger, California. We dropped off a ton of food for this hungry, hungry ghost. Fly us all the way out to Vermont. And Despicable B, while we're headed out there, go ahead and hit that time travel button. We're headed on back to the 1880s. <laughs> We're now flying around in the 1880s. We're crisscrossing America. It's a quick montage of all of these old people. Well, they were young back then, but we imagine them with big beards. They're digging up giant skeletons. Giant skeletons being found all over the United States. And we're watching montages of people standing next to giant skeletons and then people winning awards for the best giant skeleton ever dug up. And then... Off in the distance, off in the distance, every time a giant skeleton is dug up, you start to see a train coming towards them. And this train has on board a bunch of experts from the Smithsonian. They're here to validate the claim of these giant skeletons. The giant skeletons of America, it's a very popular conspiracy theory. There's photographs. There's a lot of photographs of these people. There's photographs of them standing next to these giant skeletons that they just dug up. And then the skeletons always just disappeared. We did a whole episode on it. I'll put it in the show notes. I find it interesting. I think the problem with that conspiracy theory, I'll put my cards on the table, is that uh, newspapers lie. They lie today. They lied back then. They'll tell lies to sell newspapers. And I think a lot of those photos were fake. I think those articles were put in there to drum up business for the newspaper. We did an episode a while back about a newspaper that ran a five-part series saying they had the world's strongest telescope and they saw people dancing on the moon. And it was totally made up. It was totally made up. I don't even think I have to say that they 100% made it up. So I think a lot of these photographs were fake. Now, were all of them fake? We've done enough stories about legends of giants in America. We had that native tribe that was a bunch of giant red-headed cannibals running around kidnapping other people. I do believe that giants could have existed, right? I'm not totally saying they're all made up, but I think a lot of them were. I think a lot of these photographs were. But that's not even the most interesting part of the conspiracy theory. Are they real? Are they fake? The conspiracy theory really is the Smithsonian Institute, who was supposed to be collecting all of these artifacts from all around America and finding out what the heritage was of this country, both pre- and post-colonialism, when they got these skeletons, they smashed them to pieces. They were actively covering up the existence of giants in America. But the question always was, why? Why would they do this? You have a giant. You have a giant in your country. Why would you want to destroy this? And when I did this episode... If I remember correctly, it's been years since I've listened to it. But when I did this episode, I think the leading conspiracy theory was that if you have giants, if you have proof of giants, you have proof of the Bible. The idea was that because giants, outside of David and Goliath, giants are basically the Nephilim. They're proof that angels came down and had sex with human women 
and created a race of giants, a race of heroes of renown. And God's like, this isn't what I had planned for the humans. I didn't want these half-human, half-angels. So he sent the flood to destroy the Nephilim. And then Noah gets in his ark and the animals and all that stuff. And it's the restart of humanity as to what we know today. So if you could prove that giants existed, it would be proof that the Bible was true. And the Smithsonian, this godless institution, wanted to do whatever it took to make sure people didn't think the Bible was true. I mean, that's the leading conspiracy theory as to why they would actually want to destroy these skeletons. What's even more fascinating than that is what may actually be the reason why they were doing this. Because to be fair, we don't know if they're actually smashing skeletons. We have reports of these skeletons being found. Who knows how many of those reports were just fake from the get-go. But let's say you had, let's say five of them were real, or ten, or a dozen, whatever. You would have these skeletons shipped off to the Smithsonian to be studied, and they would never be heard from again. At the time where we had all of this stuff popping up, there was a guy named John Wesley Powell. And he was in charge of the Bureau of Ethnology for the United States from 1879 to 1902. So again, we're matching up to when these articles were popping up in the newspaper. The Bureau of Ethnology, or the Bureau of American Ethnology is what it came to be known as, worked directly with the Smithsonian Institute. And John Wesley Powell was the author of the Powell Doctrine, which basically directed how we would study pre-colonial times in America. There will be no reading into information. There will be no examination of artifacts. There will be no trying to connect any native structure, building, art form, or language to any culture outside of the United States. No we think the Vikings got here. No ancient Chinese landed on the shores of California. No a boat came from Assyria and left some markings on a cave somewhere deep in Arizona. None of that. No civilization from the New World contacted the natives of America pre-Columbus. End of story. It didn't happen. Not only did it not happen, it's actually disrespectful to the cultures that were here, building the mounds, building the structures, creating the art, creating the language that the Native Americans did. They go, it's completely disrespectful to think that a boat from India got lost and ended up on the shores of Texas and taught them how to write. I'm not going to have it. And because he was in charge of the... And because he was in charge of the Bureau of Ethnology... He set the direction for investigation pre-Columbus. So we're really not even talking pre-colonial, pre-Columbus. No one came from the New World to America ever. If you see any evidence of that, you're reading it wrong. This fascinating stuff, right? Here's this guy who is stating, making this blanket claim and everyone goes, uh, yeah, sure. So when we do find Viking runes on the East Coast that easily predate any sort of pilgrims, 
any sort of explorers that are post-Columbus. Completely written off. It's a fraud. Doesn't exist. Someone must have carved it after the fact. We find language in the American South and West that is similar to languages from the Middle East. Now, totally, either it was a mistake or you're reading it wrong. Because that didn't happen. So when it comes to the giant skeletons, it's the same thing. When you would look at these, a lot of times they're adorned with spears and jewelry and all these other accoutrements. Is that a word? Did I say that right? That is not of the native tribe. And smash them. Get rid of them. And what's really interesting is we go, okay, so he believes that. The Pal Doctrine changed the way we looked at things. The, really the way we are examining history. If you saw something that looked like Assyrian, you saw writing that appeared to be Greek, it wasn't. You're reading it wrong. Why? Why? Why is he so adamant about this? Some people say it's because he had tremendous respect for the natives that were here and he didn't want to undercut their systems. He didn't want to undercut their technology and their writing by saying, oh, but someone else gave it to him. However, and that might be true, but however, there's another group of people who believe, and this is so fascinating, this is going to lead into the next story too, so fascinating. A lot of people believe the reason why he was adamant that there was no one here before the Native Americans, and there was no contact between the New World and the Old World, or the, yeah, which, yeah, the Old World's Europe, between the Old World and the New World pre-Columbus because he hated Mormons. And the Mormon religion, really in a nutshell, just like the history of it, I'm not going to go into like the actual like pre-Joseph Smith and all that stuff, pre-finding the golden tablets, is that there were massive empires in America. They had these two huge warring groups of people that had these, what we would describe as European-level battles, right? These, like, two, like England and France colliding over territory. That's what we were talking about. They weren't these little separate tribes that kind of were nomadic moving across the wilderness. No, they had an empire. They had multiple empires that went to war on American soil. And there are, within the Latter-day Saints, there are archaeologists that are looking for proof of these great battles, of these great civilizations that once existed in America. John Wesley Powell, his father was a Methodist preacher in Palmyra, New York. And when the Book of Mormon was published in 1830, it started a wildfire of people wanting to convert to Mormonism. And John's own father was affected by this. John's father... His church was emptied out. All of his congregation joined the Latter-day Saints. And this Methodist minister couldn't believe that so many people could be led astray, led astray by this religion that just popped up. And saying all this crazy stuff about these empires in America, and you have these ruling elite, and they're riding their mighty beasts into combat, and all these crazy battles, and all of this technology, this golden armor, it just doesn't exist. None of it exists. How can people be believing this book? I lost all the members of my church. This is blasphemous. So when his son grows up, he sees the effect that it has on his father, sees the effect that it has on the community when he grows up and joins the Bureau of Ethnology. He says, 
That is impossible. And if you find any proof that there was any sort of advanced contact on this continent, it doesn't exist. You're reading it wrong. End of story. So forget the giant skeletons, right? Is it possible the Smithsonian was actually smashing up this like proof of the Mormon religion? It's fa- it's a fascinating story. That's actually not the story I plan to tell. Like I have another story that's more <laughs> I have a story that just happened a couple months ago that I want to talk about too. I think I'm going to save that till tomorrow and and I cuz this is I, I've been wanting to tell this story. I've actually been finding a good, I'm looking for a good place to put it. So I think we're going to kind of wrap it up here for this one. But yeah, it, it's a crazy conspiracy. Is it true? I've always been of the, I, it's funny because we, there's so many ways to break it down. I'll try to wrap it up very quickly. But first off, I would understand John Wesley Powell's motivations both ways, right? The one is based on anger. The one is based on anger. Now, he could have seen what the Mormon religion did to his community and did to his father, right? To be a minister with no congregation, you're not really a minister. I mean, you're a man of God, sure, but you, you know who you're preaching to. They're all gone. And he wanted revenge. He, again, he's hearing from his dad, like, this is just idolatry. This isn't real. Look at this. Look at what's in this book. None of this is real. And then you can imagine the son taking on that anger. So if someone did get a telegram from the middle of Mississippi saying, hey, we did find this weird thing. We found like a, a set of golden armor. What, what, like, what do we do with this? Well, we know there. We know for a fact golden armor was not here pre-Columbus. So, so it might be a fraud. But just send it back. We'll take care of it. <laughs> Melt it down. He's walking around with a golden grill. He's like, ha, ha, ha. But then we take a look at let's let's leave let's say his motivation wasn't spite out of the Mormon religion ruining his father's church. It, I could also understand him do because he definitely did have this doctrine. The Powell Doctrine is a real document. I'll put it in the links. But you also have the motivation of him saying, "Listen, the natives to America, all of these tribes, they are advanced. They all have this advanced society. They've done these things." And to say that. Oh, they were just a bunch of people eating grass until the Assyrians showed up. A wave washed them over all the way from the Middle East. And then they showed up here and they taught them how to ride and taught them how to draw and taught them how to have a society. It really does. It really is demeaning, right? It would be demeaning. I could see him doing that as well. He said, I have great respect for the natives of this country before we got here. Would it be right if he did that? No. As a historian, you want the story to be what it is. You want it to be, you want to hit, whether or not history is good or bad, that's not the point. It's the fact that this is what happened. I've always, and I hear, I've always been a believer that you did have contact between the old, the old world and the new world before Columbus. But I don't think it was like, the natives didn't know how to do anything until a Viking boat showed up in New England and then they talked and then they're like, whoa, you can write stuff down too. I think the the tribes, all the different tribes of America, they had their art system, they had their writing system, they had their society, they had their government. And then a couple of Vikings showed up in New England. And it would have been a hard scrabble w- world to live in, right? But you leave your etchings on rocks somewhere out there some runes, 
And eventually they either got obliterated by the locals or they integrated into the locals or they just died on their own eating some poison berries. The end. I do believe stuff like that happened. I do believe when you find a tablet that is clearly not of a language of the locals in the area that either someone brought... I mean, you could say you're misreading it, sure. It could be a modern fraud, sure. But when you can get rid of those two, when you can debunk those two and say, no, we know that this this was carved back in 1300 AD. We know for a fact it's not modern. We can look at it and you could say we're misreading it, but this clearly looks like this is not from around here. This clearly looks like it is Assyrian or this is Chinese or whatever. Then you have to say, yeah, there were, there probably were isolated incidents where boats were blown off course and they thought they were going to die out in the middle of nowhere. And they ended up washing along the shores of California. I do believe that that happened. I do. We did that a cool episode. One of my favorite episodes about the Viking boat that's found in Death Valley. I love, that's one of my favorite Stories. I think even when I was said recording it, I think I said it was one of my favorite stories. And this day, it's one of my favorite stories. I do believe that the giant skeletons. Going back to that, like that's always the thing. Like yellow journalism, they're making stuff up, but some of it could have been real. Like some of those giant skeletons could have been real. A giant in and of itself isn't an oddity, right? We have giants today, you know. So I think that's possible. I definitely think it's possible that you had some giants. I don't know if we have giants today. And when people see Shaq, they don't go, well, I guess the Bible's true. You know, he's just a really cool basketball player, right? Seems like a really nice guy. People aren't like, wow, well, they talked about giants in the Bible. And here I'm looking at an entire roster of giants. They're called the LA Lakers. Therefore, the Bible's true. Like, I I don't really get that. But I don't think it would be proof of the Bible. But I do think that... If you're using the Powell Doctrine and you get a phone call or a telegram back in the late 1800s and they're saying, hey, we found this giant skeleton, the Smithsonian, according to the Powell Doctrine, would say, this is a fake, this is not real, and at the the very end of the day, if this is actual proof of a society outside of the Native American society that we know of, It doesn't exist. And you'd be like, well, we're clearly looking at the skeleton. It doesn't exist. Like, and you would make it not exist. So the idea of them smashing skeletons, not so people don't believe in the Bible, but smashing the skeletons because they're being told this stuff doesn't exist. What you're looking at is either fake or you're misreading it, right? It's just some guy with gigantism. It doesn't mean anything. Just smash it to pieces or box it up, shove it away. We'll get to it later. But you never meant to get to it later because it would actually be proof of another civilization where 100% there wasn't one. It was just the Native Americans. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. And it does dovetail into what I wanted to talk about. And again, equally fascinating. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Where we're going to meet a conspiracy theorist in the local government who's affecting people today. This was just supposed to be a segue, really. But I really love this topic. John Wellesley Powell had a theory, a conspiracy theory. I mean, we would say, it's interesting because we would say it's not a conspiracy theory, Jason. This is history. This is what we know. But the reason why it's history is because the person in charge of it 
said get rid of any proof. He doesn't, to be fair, he didn't say smash the skeleton. <laughs> to be fair, he doesn't say that in the document. He's just saying, if you find it and it points to an origin outside of the Native Americans, you're reading it wrong or it's fake. And that was the directive. That was the doctrine. And people followed it. And now it's just history. People may not explicitly follow it, but it pretty much is followed now. Whenever you see an article about something being found that is proof of a pre-Columbus contact with the old world, it's always been like it's fake, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. All these articles would just be kind of debunking it. And some of it does deserve to be debunked, right? Some of it is fake, but... This guy put his finger on the scale. Historians were looking into this stuff, and he had his finger on the scale. And how many people knew that his father hated Mormons? How many people knew that? Puts his finger on the scale. So when they're trying to figure out what this is, you have this invisible hand pushing down this Powell Doctrine, saying, well, it's not that, and it's not that, so it must just be a mistake. It must be a fraud fascinating story. It really does not affect our lives directly today, but it affects the history of the continent and of all the cultures on here. All because one man issued a memo. Now, whether that memo was based out of respect for the existing cultures or hatred for a religion, we don't know for sure. But whatever his motive was, how much of American history was lost? Because one man believed he knew how history should be told. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.